Hi, and welcome to the Overflow Podcast. I'm Chuck Ammons, lead pastor of Overflow Church in Brandon, Florida, and we are here to help you receive the Father's love and to release it to everyone you encounter everywhere. Wherever you're listening from today, your God adores you. I pray this message elevates and ignites your faith. On this podcast, you will find biblical messages to activate your faith so you experience the goodness of God and the greatness of your unique voice in His kingdom. To find out more about Overflow Church, visit us at overflowchurch.com or on Facebook at Overflow Church Brandon. We'd also love to encourage you to check out our book, Life in the Overflow, and its accompanying devotional on amazon.com. Good morning, Overflow Church. God is in the house and God is good. Don't worry, I only sound like death. I'm feeling all right. We have reached the end this week of our 90 days of reading through the Gospels. For those of you reading through the Gospels, this is the end this week. Way to go. That is incredible. So we've got those PDFs coming to you. And actually, we're going to take a little break in July. And then in August, we're going to come back and read through the book of Acts together. So it's going to be incredible. I'm going to ask right now, you just put your hand on your heart with me. Say, Jesus, Jesus. I want you, you. only you, you. come take over. over. I want the full gospel. gospel. Trim the fat. (laughs) Speak the truth. truth. Set me free. free. If you agree, that's an amen. 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 Listen, there's something powerful about the first time you get to experience something. Does anybody remember the first day of school? When you'd come for the first day of school? Some of you remember the thing called school before the pandemic? <laughs> the place we went, I'm looking at people, I don't, I don't understand. First day of school. I can remember for me the first day of seventh grade. It was a brand new middle school that was opening. We were the very first seventh grade class. Now listen, I'm going to give a little bit about my age. For some of you, you're going to feel, wow, he's really old. For some of you, you're going to go, you're that young? I didn't know. I'm right in the middle. I was the first year that they actually, um, when I became a seventh grader, that was the first year they included sixth grade in middle school. So I was the first, uh, the last seventh grade class to come through. This new middle school that opened up, what was that? Got a fan. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, son. <clears throat> and in great fashion, I couldn't even tell it was your voice coming. That's awesome. My hearing's doing great. That first day of middle school, I can remember, they had a news crew out there. And when the first day of school comes, you got to go and get your new clothes, right? You get those. I was styling, right? I was looking pretty fly for a white guy on the front page of the paper. It was great. Maybe you can remember the first for married people in the room. Can you remember the first moment you set eyes on the person that would become your spouse? That first day. Can you remember the day of your wedding, husbands, the the first glimpse you got of your bride coming down the aisle? Or maybe parents in the room, can you remember for your kids the first time you held them and looked at them? Followers of Jesus in the room, anybody love Jesus in the room? Can you remember the first time you really understood his love and the wonder of his forgiveness that he didn't just love you, he also liked you? See, we have, for these first, we have yearbooks and photo albums and videos and memories, times that we can come back. But I just want to encourage you this morning. I want to take a little time machine back. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for just a minute. And I want you to allow Jesus to bring the picture back of some of the firsts. Would you think back and remember, those of you who are in love, the first day you looked at that person that you would give your whole heart to? Would you take a minute and breathe and remember the day of your wedding? Moms and dads, would you remember that time in the hospital when they placed that child in your arm? And I want to encourage you, moms, I want to encourage you to picture every one of your kids. For some of you, you're a large family like mine, so I'm going to take a minute. I want you to see each face of each one of your children for the first time, and you knowing, though they've done nothing for you, there's no way in the world you could possibly love anything more. That you'd give your whole life up for them. With your eyes closed, I want you to remember the wonder of whenever it was that Jesus came alive to you, the first time that shackles fell, that chains fell, that you knew forgiveness, that that thing that everybody said And the lie in your head said you would always wrestle with that it fell, that it was gone, that it was over, that you didn't look back. That his grace met with you and transformed you and changed you. 
Now, as your eyes are closed, maybe as you think back, you're being filled right now with a depth of gratitude for all the places Jesus has taken you. Maybe at the same time as your eyes are closed, right now you're also filled with a little bit of sadness because life seems so much simpler than in these days you feel exhausted. I'm just going to ask wherever you are this morning, would you allow God the grace to meet with you on the road and take you back to the beginning? There's a grace that's waiting for us back at the beginning of the road. Oh, Father, would you speak to us there? I'm going to ask you to open your eyes with me. It's where I want to go this morning, the very last chapter of the Gospels, John chapter 21. And of all things, it's kind of written as a postscript to the Gospel of John. John kind of ends in John 20 with all the events. But then there's this one last story that has to be told. And it's a story about an adored disciple named Peter. And Peter, in John chapter 21, is met by Jesus. Now, if you remember the story... Jesus came to Peter three years earlier. He was a fisherman whose name was Simon. And Jesus had the audacity as his first act to just change his name, to say, that's not your name anymore. That's not what you're going to be called. And then he invited him to be a fisher of men. You remember that day they'd been toiling all night and not caught anything. They were frustrated the next morning. And he spoke to them and said, throw your net to the other side. And they threw the net to the other side. And they couldn't bring in all the fish. And he said, Lord, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. He said, I'm changing your name. And I'm calling you to follow me. And for the rest of your life, you're going to fish for men. And he gave these two words, follow me. And Peter did. He left everything. Peter was the first disciple that Jesus called. He was the leader among the 12. In fact, every list you're ever going to read in the Gospels, it's Peter's name that is mentioned first. And I got to tell you, old Pete had some amazing moments as a disciple, though most of them included him doing something to stick his foot in his mouth by the end of the story. (laughs) Remember with Peter, Peter was the disciple, the only other human being in history to walk on water. Peter walked on water until he took his eyes off Jesus and screamed in panic, making a fool of himself. Peter witnessed the transfiguration. Moses was told no person could look at the face and the glory of God and live, but Peter did. Peter saw the, the Christ in all of his glory until he opened his mouth and said something dumb about building three tents and staying up there and completely ruining this photographic moment. Peter was the only disciple who recognized Jesus as the Messiah. He said, you're the Lord, you're the Christ. But in true Peter fashion, he couldn't stop talking then. And he continued to openly rebuke Jesus for saying that he had to go to the cross when Peter was also the only disciple ever to be called Satan. By the way, just ever in your prayer life, if Jesus says that what you're saying is aligning with Satan, turn around. You're wrong. You're going the wrong direction. In John 21, when we find Peter, there's a key moment that is defining his life that he can't shake. It's when Jesus came to him and Jesus had warned him of a cost and a cross. And Peter refused to believe it. Jesus came to him and said, Peter, you and all of the disciples, you're going to deny that you ever knew me. You're going to run. I know that you love me, but it's going to get hard. And Peter, you're going to fail. And I prayed for you when you failed, when Satan tries to sift you like wheat, that you'd rise again and your faith's not going to fail. And when you fall, I want you to get up and go back to your brothers and know that I haven't given up on my call on you. But Peter could hear none of it because Peter's confidence was in Peter's performance. Peter's confidence was in Peter's will, in Peter's passion, in Peter's charisma, And Peter's desire, Peter did what all the Disney movies call you to do. He believed in himself. He believed in himself so much that he sold all of his friends down the river. He said, listen, even if all of those guys deny you, I never will. But he did. To save his own life, three times he denied even knowing Jesus, calling down curses over himself. Jesus went to the cross. Three days later, Peter got word early on a Sunday morning that Jesus 
had been raised from the dead, and he ran to see Jesus and barged into the empty tomb only to find his grave closed. Jesus wasn't there. Jesus appeared a little bit later that day to all of the disciples except Thomas, appeared in a group setting, and then eight days later, he appeared to all the disciples with Thomas. But after this moment, with never another opportunity for Peter and Jesus to talk it out, Peter found complete silence. That's where we find him in John chapter 21. He'd had amazing moments with Jesus in the past. Anybody had amazing moments with Jesus in the past? When Jesus came into that locked room with the disciples, he breathed the Holy Spirit and spoke about how they would all be sent out in the future. He had amazing promises for one day of the future. Anybody got amazing promises of the future? But right now, Peter was reeling in the uncertainty of the present. You see, his last private moment was when he denied Jesus for the third time. And it says that Jesus in the house turned around and looked right in the eyes of Peter. And Peter wept. That's the last moment they had together. That was the last photograph to put in the back of the album. And Jesus had come back and Jesus had risen, but Peter had failed. And now Jesus was gone with some future promise that there's going to be hope again. Jesus, Peter was stuck between the memories of his past and the promises of his future with no clue what to do in his present. Can anybody relate with that? And so in John chapter 21, this is the way it starts. Peter comes to six of the disciples and he says very simply, I'm going fishing. Peter gets up and he goes back to what he knew. He goes back to what he understood before all of this started. He goes back to the old patterns and he goes out and he fishes all night and they catch nothing. Just like the night before he first met Jesus. In the morning... They're frustrated when they hear the voice of a backseat fisherman from the shore. He says, why don't you throw the net on the other side? Same thing Jesus said the first time they met, but they're tired and they're frustrated and they don't even recognize him. They decide to throw the net anyway and suddenly it says this, John chapter 21, verses 6 and 7. It says, they cast it and were unable to haul it in because of the quantity of fish and the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, Proclaimed to Peter, it is the Lord. Suddenly it was like a time machine had taken him back. He found himself standing in the exact same scene as the first moment they met. He had toiled all night and caught nothing. He threw his net into the other side. This was the day that Jesus first invited him. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And so the other six, there were seven in the boat. Six are trying as hard as they can to pull in the fish so they don't sink the boat. But Peter's having none of it. It says that he takes his coat, tucks it into his belt, and dives into the water. Though they were just 100 yards away. He couldn't have another moment of separation from his Savior. And finally on the shore, Peter gets to the moment he'd both longed for and dreaded for a while now. Finally, Jesus and Peter are standing alone together. And in two scenes, Jesus takes Peter back to the start to do two things, to erase the shame of compromise and to eliminate the sting of comparison. He shows up to take him back to erase the shame of compromise, and to eliminate the sting of comparison. First, he erases the shame of compromise. It reads this way, John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to it was Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he was grieved in his heart because he said the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. 
Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I tell you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death by which Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus shows up with a simple question. Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Before it was ever asked to Kiki, it was asked to Peter. Peter, do you love me? That was for you, Pastor Brenda. The word Jesus uses here is the deepest word that has ever been used for love. It's agape love. Have you heard of agape love before? Listen, agape love means to love dearly and to demonstrate it through emptying yourself in action for what's best for someone else. A lot of love talks, but agape love acts. The first two times, Peter, Jesus asked the question, do you agape love me? And confidently, confident Peter, I agape love you, Jesus. Finally, the third time he asks, it hits Peter and he grieves deeply. And this time Peter uses a different word than the word agape. He uses the word phileo. It means an affectionate love, a tender love, an emotional love like you would have for a friend or a brother or a sister. Lots of scholars have debated what's going on, but I want to tell you what I believe is happening in this moment. Here, Peter, back at the start, is finally admitting his weakness. This is the moment that he stops performing, that he stops putting up the mask, and he simply says, Jesus, you know everything. I'm deeply affectionate for you, but I've lost all confidence that I can actually stay with you. I'm probably going to fail, but with every bit of this fiber of this weak being, yes, Jesus, you know, I, I love you. I don't really have confidence in anything else other than that anymore. He's no longer placing his confidence in his ability to love Jesus well enough. And instead, he chooses in this moment to be held it's as if Peter is saying this, I choose to accept right now that you have me and you hold me in Jesus in, in ways that are too great for me to reciprocate back to you. That you love me with a greater love than I love you. And then it's amazing. Without another word, Jesus continues speaking. And Jesus says something that maybe if you were hearing your future being read, you wouldn't want to hear, because he's telling Pete, you're going to be old, other people are going to be dressing you, they're leading you places you don't want to go. You're like, thanks a lot, Jesus. Yay, first disciple. But I don't want you to miss what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, hey, Peter, you're saying you feel like you've lost your confidence. And the last time you stood in the dock to say, if you would stand for me and if you'd follow me, you gave up, but I want to let you know you're going to follow me and you're going to feed my sheep until the day you're old. And when you're old, they're going to come and they're going to lead you places, Pete, you don't want to go. And they're going to dress you in things you don't want to wear. But I need to let you know, Pete, I see you. And you're going to make it all the way to the end. You know, tradition holds that Peter was crucified just like his Lord, but he asked to be crucified upside down because he was not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. You see, this moment marked Peter in, in an instant his shame was gone. And Jesus ends back at the start with two words, follow me. First question I want to ask us this morning is this. What shame are you still carrying around that Jesus took a long time ago? What shame, what is it when you look in the mirror, when you walk around the unspoken convictions, what is the hard attitude you have between you and God that you're still carrying around? Where is it you're still trying to puff up and be confident and be strong enough? And you need to let it die on the beach to say, Jesus, I'm affectionate for you, I love you, and that's all the confidence that I have. Where do you need shame to fall? For Peter, this was an amazing moment, but it wasn't complete. Pete still wasn't ready to follow Jesus. When Jesus said the word, follow me, Peter had one more question to ask. It says this, one problem left, keeping Peter from truly following. John 21, 20 through 22. It says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them and asked, but Lord, what about this man? 
Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Peter and John had a friendly rivalry. They were two of Jesus' inner three. It was Peter, James, and John. But now listen, John was known as the disciple Jesus loved, a title he gave himself, by the way, which I think is awesome. You want to know something about who's the next confident disciple? John shows up and says, oh, what you want to call me? I'm the one Jesus loves. I'm teacher's pet. And sure enough, all the other disciples had to agree. Remember, John was the one that at the Last Supper leaned back there next to Jesus in the place that it says that Jesus was with the Father, in the, in the, the bosom of the beloved. That was the seat that you sat when you were the most beloved. John and Peter, John writes that he and Peter both ran to the tomb, and in their friendly competition, he has to note to all of us, I outran Peter. <laughs> I got there first. And like a gentleman, I stood outside, grieving, waiting to see, and Peter shows up and just barges in and takes over everything. This is John and Peter's dynamic. But listen, Peter was the leader. Peter was the man, and yet, after Peter denied Jesus, he wasn't at the cross and he'd heard the word of how Jesus entrusted the care of his mom to John. See, Peter is free of shame, but he's still shackled by comparison. He says, Pete, I want you to follow me. And he says, I, I need to know where do I stand with you in comparison to him? And I need to know where do I stand in the world in comparison to him? Can I ask a really honest, vulnerable question? Do you ever wrestle when you see the kindness of God that pours out in people around you and wonder, what is it I'm doing wrong? Let me go deeper. Do you ever have tender places that you won't even form the words to say that you feel somewhere deep down within that God picks certain kids as his favorites and you're not one of them? That life seems to work so well for them, fill in the blank, whoever they are. Every room they go in, they're celebrated. All of their gifts are lifted up. Everything works out for them, but no matter how faithful you are, no matter what you pray, there's always another step. There's always a seat you're not welcome to at a table. No matter what you do, you can't catch a break. Let me go a little deeper. Do you ever wrestle with jealousy of someone else's success? and find yourself obsessing like Peter, God, where do I stand next to them? I want to tell you, for most of us, when we cry out that God hasn't been good to us, it's not because we don't have a myriad of reasons to point to the goodness of God. Come on, every person in this room. Can we talk about how God has been good to us? But listen, every orphan lament is when we come up and we say, but I don't think you've been good to me in comparison to how good you've been to them. This is where Peter finds himself. Theodore Roosevelt once said that comparison is the thief of joy. And it's true. In Romans 2.11 it says this, it says, God does not show favoritism. Can I tell you something this morning? Favoritism is impossible to the nature of our God. Let me say that again for somebody in the back. Favoritism is impossible to the nature of our God. Our God is not just good. He is goodness itself. He can do nothing that is not rooted in goodness. We are all his beloved. You know that word in the New Testament, beloved? It means favorite child. Did you know we're all the disciple Jesus loved? John got it right. He was just the only one audacious enough to say it. But if you could see what heaven sees, you'd look in the mirror and say, I'm the disciple Jesus loves. I'm the one he loves. It's all of us. Why do we know that? Because, listen, to be the beloved, it means this. I want you to say this. Hand on your heart. Say, I'm the beloved. I'm the beloved. <laughs> That's awesome. So now we're going to say it again like we actually believe it. Ready? I am the beloved. Yeah, so guess what this means? Listen, based on what you just said, it means that right now you are receiving the maximum amount of favor that God can possibly give you. Somebody needs to receive that deep because it's going to change your prayers. Right now, 
you are receiving the maximum amount of favor a God who absolutely adores you can give you. There is no scarcity with God. 1 John 3, 1, it says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. Not what we could be, not what they are, but you aren't. When you come to Christ, you are the beloved. In that word lavished, it's like when you go to the water park. It's that big, giant, um, that big giant bucket that they have at the water park that you watch the little three-year-old under, and you're like, oh, dear Lord, when that thing spills, it's going to wipe that kid out. <laughs> this is what I want to tell you. The love of God is that bucket, and you're the three-year-old, and you're about to get wiped out by the love of God because he's always lavishing it on you because you're his favorite kid. You are the disciple Jesus loves. So I don't know where you are on the journey right now, but I need to give you a promise. The God who is love is loving you perfectly right now. And that matters because comparison is a scheme of the orphan spirit to take beloved kids' eyes off of the passionate gaze of their father to their position with their brother or their sister. Competition breeds fear, jealousy, striving, and death everywhere it goes. We are not to look at our present circumstance or to our present comparison to our brother or sister, but to keep our eyes on Christ, who, as he said to Peter, calls us, follow me. Wherever you're at in the journey today, I want to tell you that you have a unique voice, a unique call, a unique path, and you move the Father's heart in a unique way that will never be duplicated again in all of human history. The Father who is good is being good to you, and today he wants to take you and I out of the funk of whatever we're walking in back to the start to stop looking at our circumstances, to stop looking at everyone else, and to hear our Savior say this, and listen, this is what Jesus is saying to you today. When you go, what about that person? What about this circumstance? This thing didn't come through. He's saying this. What does that have to do with you? You, eyes on me, follow me. This marks the end of the Gospel of John. Peter had no other words to say. Finally, in this moment, he knew that his shame had been eliminated and that comparison had been erased. And as he looked at the arms of his Savior, he was taken back to the very first moment to see as much adoration in Jesus' eyes as he had before he ever fell with his arms extended. And I want to tell you, my brothers, my sisters, it's where Jesus stands with you today, with giddy affection and joy delighting in you and saying, I know you're wearied and worried about many things, but if you'd stop focusing on it and look up and see me, I just have two words to ask. Would you follow me? Would you close your eyes with me? In this place, I just want to ask a few questions. And then before we're done this morning, we're going to celebrate some sons and daughters and brothers and sisters that are following the king. But before we do that, we've got to ask some questions. I'm going to ask right now with your eyes closed, would you just lay your hand on your heart? Here's the question I need to ask. Who is it time to stop comparing yourself to? Come on, somebody. Who is it that you walk in jealousy of? Who is it that you find yourself like Cain to his brother Abel in your heart? And God is calling you today to lay down that weapon to understand you're being loved with the same love. Where is it time for you to stop believing that God is holding out? Can I ask the question here in the silence? Where is it time to stop empowering your circumstances? Where is it time that your joy would not follow how everything else is going around you? 
but that you would go to ever-increasing levels of glory because you're being held. Your performance is going to be all over the map, but you're being held by a God who adores you and is constantly, and right at this moment, pouring out the maximum level of his favor and his love upon you. What circumstance do you need to get off your hook and throw back in the water today? The last question I want to ask is this. What passion did Jesus put in your heart? I said here a moment ago that you move the heart of God in a way nobody else ever will. There's a facet, a direction, a picture. You're a part of the body of Christ that can't be duplicated. If you don't play your part, we never get where we need to get. There's something in the way you love Jesus There's something in the way you speak his name. There's something in the things you see on earth. There's some things that break your heart in a different way than they break anybody else's heart. There's some wisdom that you carry that others just don't carry the same way. Where is it time to stop lamenting about everybody and everything else? And simply understand that right now, on your good days and on your bad days, you're being held by a father who adores you and who right now extends his hand, wanting to give confidence to the specific lane that he called you to run. And that we, the body of Christ, need to be lifting you up and applauding and celebrating. It's not this or that we need in the the kingdom of God. It's all of it. We need every part to play its full function. We need all of the multiplicity of all of the shades of Christ being released upon the planet. And you carry something that won't be duplicated. What is it? If you could have permission to do anything with King Jesus, what would it be? And don't start with the circumstance of who else needs to agree before you can do it. Let me ask it again. If you had permission to do anything alongside King Jesus, the burning passion of your heart, what would it be? Will you take your eyes off of all the distractions, off of all the disappointments, and look back at your Savior who calls to you right this moment? Come on, follow me. Father God, right now with each person's hand on their heart, I'm asking, I'm believing boldly that there are dreams that you have in this room. And I believe that it's moments like this, moments of silence where we agree with heaven that some of the biggest miracles ever take place. I don't believe it always happens in big, booming arenas. I think it's moments where we come like this, just a still, small whisper. And I'm asking right now, Holy Spirit, I'm believing you. Right now, you are showing sons and daughters things that you created them to make, and they thought it was their idea. You've inspired them by other people around them, and they thought, oh, that's just me trying to compare to them. But there's something burning in each of our hearts for you, and I'm asking right now, Holy Spirit, would you unlock it? Would you remove all shame from it? Would you remove all comparison from it? Would you remove all the ways that we would show up and say, oh, it's not really that important, it's not really good enough, all the ways we'd psych ourselves out and talk ourselves out? Would you come be the perfect love that casts out fear? And I'm asking, Father, that you would come in this moment and pour the particular passion of your Holy Spirit, the way you poured a particular passion on a disciple you very much love named Peter. And I'm asking until the days that we are old, in the moments when people lead us where we don't want to go, may we never, ever, ever look back from feeding your sheep. Lord, may we be the people who will follow you. If you agree with that, say amen. Amen. Now, I did something kind of intentional this morning, as this is the last Sunday before I get to go on a Sabbath with my family this next month. Um, in July, we're going on a Sabbath together. So I wanted to close this service a different way, not just to talk about what it would be if we could believe in the dreams that God has and not be bound by comparison, but if we'd actually step up and run in some of the ways. And I want to tell you, I've got a few brothers and sisters here today that are doing just that, that I'd like to take a few minutes and celebrate. So one of them, we've got a brand new announcement to you. Overflow Church, that we've got a new pastor that has been brought on to our staff because we've desperately needed it. As you know, we're a missional community church, 
And part of that as a missional community church is not just a program of small groups, but we believe this, that it is the saints called to equip one another, and there are people called to equip the saints. And as we get in community together and we stay together, that this multifaceted glory will grow. And so we've known as missional communities, who here is in a missional community? Wave your hands in the air. Yeah, it's awesome. So listen, those of you in missional communities, we're just getting out the gate. But one of the things we knew is that we needed a pastor to our missional community leaders that as they lead you well, can be there and help lift up all these things. And in the months to come, I'm telling you, if you've been going to missional community and you think missional community is awesome, uh, you haven't seen anything yet because we haven't even really stepped into what it looks like to be a five-fold missional community. But now we have the pieces in place because we have a very special pastor and friend that I want to welcome up right now. Would you welcome our pastor to missional community leaders, my buddy for a very long time, Pastor Josh Baylog. What's up, man? Hey. Good to see you. Pull up a chair. This one. Yeah, I think you could do that one. You could either one of them. Full of options here. Thanks so. for meeting me here. I have so. a few questions for you. That's good. <laughs> so, Pastor Josh, we've walked together a long, long time. Um, it, it has been, gosh, over 20 years ago. You were in my wedding. I was in your wedding. We went to college together. We've been in ministry together a long time. And so God called you here into this role. And, and there's a few reasons I wanted to bring you up today. One, you are living everything we just preached is that this man has a very particular, you're not going to find a better shepherd on the planet for your heart that is going to be present, show up and love you. So in the days that I've been most discouraged, this is the guy that I could pick up the phone and call and he's here for me. And as a shepherd, as you found your voice, um, I just want to celebrate that, first of all, that you found a lane to run. And I want to say we desperately need you, Josh Balog, in the body of Christ. And so I wanted to bring you up just to ask a few questions about what you see and what God's called you to, because your role is going to be now going to the missional community leaders. You're really leading the missional community leaders to make sure they're encouraged, they're built up, and all of these things are the fivefold, the prophetic, the evangelistic, the pastoral, that they're being released through the group, but not just from the leader, because we're not trying to build a program. So can you just share a little bit about the difference between missional communities and maybe like a small group program that a church would have? Loaded question, right? So yep, I'll, I'll do my I, best. I, I only had three, so I, I loaded my questions. Right, okay. Um, as Chuck said, we've known each other for a long time. I've also been involved in church ministry for a long time. And so I've seen small groups. I've been in small groups. I've led small groups. I've been pastor of small groups in various places. And there was always one thing that bugged me for the last decade, probably. And that was just, it felt like something was missing. It felt like something was missing from the programmatic small group model. And that's not to say that every small group that's ever existed falls into this trap, but I would say that a majority of them probably do. And it's that they become very insulated and inwardly focused, right? Yeah. So if we're talking about the Christian life, I always think about it this way. And it was a pastor in England, uh, Mike Breen and others that have talked about the upward relationship with Christ the inward relationship with other believers, and then the outward expression of our faith to the unbelieving world. Yeah. Small groups, more often than not, tend to get stuck in the upward and the inward, but never get to the outward. Yeah. Because it's probably the hardest of the, of the things to actually get to, right? So when we talk about missional community, the two words in missional community are the things that we need to be letting permeate every area of our life, right? And so when you're talking about your upward relationship, you're doing that in community with people, but not just for that reason, right? It's also for the reason that there are those out there that don't know what being a Christian and following Christ really looks like. Right. They only hear and see the things that the news may report that are typically the bad things, or those that have taken advantage of roles and gone in a way that isn't Christ-like, right? And so... Whereas small groups tend to feel, for me, incom incomplete and insulated, missional communities are all about how do we get past just looking to our relationship with Christ and looking to our relationships with each other. But once we've established that and we have that safety where we can be vulnerable with each other, Christ left us here for a reason. We accepted Christ and we didn't go immediately to heaven. He left us here because he's not willing that any would perish, right? And so if we have the same heart of Christ, and we do, then we should be thinking about the outward expression of our faith. And when we don't, we're, we're missing as salt and light in the world that desperately needs it. We can agree 
that the world needs it, but rather than just circling the wagons and pointing our fingers and talking about how bad everything is out there, we're called to go out there. Right. It's the great commission, right? It's not the great suggestion. Uh, we're to go, and, and it's not anything extra than what we're already doing. It's wherever we happen to be in whatever we happen to be doing. So. Yeah. Well, and I love that because one of the things that we've watched a lot in, in the Western church the last few hundred years, and this isn't casting stones, this is us, um, is that we've tended to see the church in a programmatic way. We show up and we expect the pastor, or in some churches, the pastors. We see a few people, thank you, Pastor Mickey, um, the whole body doing their part right there. We see um, people show up and they're expecting the pastor, right? I need to talk to the pastor. I need to be counseled by the pastor. We, we develop this mindset of a professional Christian that somehow the pastor is up on this higher place and then we all show up. And this started with the revivalists that showed out in the field and there was great fruit from that. But when the pendulum swung too far, what started happening was people showed up to the church and they started going to it like they'd go to a rock concert. And I think right now what we're starting to watch with some of these mega churches that are seeing the other side of that is there's this new grassroots movement coming in the church saying, we don't want that. We actually want to walk in the place where we can disciple one another and they're actual leaders. And so there's this realigning where the pastoral leaders of the church say, no, we actually walk in certain aspects of the fivefold that we want to equip in you, but we don't want to create this separation where you go to church where the pastor does the work of the ministry and then we hear it and applaud it and talk about it and talk about what he didn't say right or what you're right, what he missed. Don't do that at lunch today. Um, Right? We evaluate. That's what we've become. We've become the American Idol panel. I didn't like that. I didn't like that. And then we jump from church to church to church. And we never get discipled. Most church growth is coming from jumping ponds, not from new people coming in. And the reason is because the church has got to get out. And so this idea of missional community is saying, no, we, we have a great priority when we come together on Sundays. And we have certain gifts that are fivefold gifts. I would operate as a fivefold apostolic teacher. So the fact that I would come to our corporate gathering and share corporate vision, that's great. That The early church met in the temple, but then they met from home to home, which is where they actually got equipped to be discipled. Can you share a little bit about how missional communities help to do that equipping, that discipling, to bring out the fivefold in people? Yeah, and you might have to come back to that in a second, but uh, as you're talking, um, I wanted to emphasize as Maya was leading us and Shane was giving us a word and we're kind of cultivating that here as a body, um, I think one of the greatest schemes of the enemy is that it's either or, yeah. right? Like depending on your personality, you may prefer the large group gathering on Sundays or if you're introverted like we are, you're gonna prefer the, the missional community model of you know seven to 50, however many people are in here, hopefully not that many, missional community, uh, you're going to prefer first, that small It's your first model. order of business. No missional communities of 50. Okay. All right. <laughs> Got it. Um, you're going to prefer one or the other, but, and Philip, maybe you can correct me afterwards if I'm wrong, but when it comes to flying a plane or autopilot in general, it, you're putting in parameters that keep you um, in this zone here, right? And so if you get too close to one and you bump into it, then it brings you back to the middle. Is that kind of the idea? of autopilot, I'm putting them on the spot, roughly. Okay, so when we're talking about missional communities and we're talking about Sunday morning, it, it's not either or. Right. We joke about this all the time as a yes and thing. It's both, right? We need both. And so yes, we need to see, even the song we were singing about fire come and fall on us and, and we need that, absolutely. Yes, we do. And we need it from home to home and in our yes. neighborhoods and wherever we meet as a missional community because Sunday mornings is for inspiration and it's for aligning with God's truth. And then our missional communities are for activating that truth and being obedient to what we hear it's and so getting out in the communities and doing the things that we're asking. Like the Holy Spirit fills us in our weakness so that we can what? Just sit in it and enjoy the feeling? Or are we supposed to do something with it, right? So even one of the things I love about our Sunday mornings in more recent times is we have a room for, we've organized for organic things to happen. Yeah. Like the best time to be obedient is when you hear something, right? Yeah. So if you're in this service and you hear something, the Holy Spirit's saying, I feel like the body needs to hear this. Then we have a process where you can go to an elder and say, I feel like we need to hear this. Right. And then we make room Which for we that. we saw several today. Exactly. Yeah. That takes place here, but that can also take place in a different way in our home to home missional community uh, meeting model. So. I don't think that answers the question that you asked, so ask it again, but I just wanted to make sure that I said no, I, th I think that's, what you said. I think that's so important, so don't miss what he just said here. You just added a fourth question, and you're allowed to do that. 
Um, you're the pastor at Emissional Community Leaders. I'm not going to stand and tell you what to do. Um, I don't want you to miss what he just said here. Because just like we need both the, the in-home, the, the closer personal relationship and the corporate gathering, we also need the full diversity of the reflections of Christ. So here's what ends up happening. I, I've walked away so many weeks at the door and had somebody come to me and go, Pastor, that was your best message ever. And I want to tell you what you're actually telling me. You're telling me something about you at that moment. You're not actually telling me anything about me. You're telling me I preached an evangelistic message and you have an evangelistic heart. And so you went, that's the best one. But the next week when the Lord told me to preach a shepherding message, you might be prone to think, hmm, he just really didn't do it as well this week. (laughs) When somebody like Maya shows up and calls for us to dance around, for some of you are like, this is the church of my dreams. This is what I've been waiting for. And other people are uncomfortable going, you know, I would just like the nice and tender moment. So we tend to evaluate when actually what we need is all of the diversity of the Spirit of God. That's why we as a church have walked in all of them. And this is what we said. If you're going to be a five-fold church, it means everybody's going to be a little uncomfortable all the time. That's what it means. <laughs> and that's the only place we actually see growth. So on Sunday mornings, we're actually looking not to disciple you. We're looking to inspire you. We're looking to call you. So, so this morning, if you came this morning and said, I heard Pastor Chuck's message, and now I will never struggle again with comparison or shame. Because that's how good of a teacher he is. I've got some news for you. Where you actually get discipled is in the refiner's fire of relationships together. Okay? That's the reason, by the way, we only have two times Jesus ever stood up and gave a long address. And we have tons of stories of him behind closed doors with his disciples. Because discipleship is made relationship to relationship. So one of the things we're doing as a church is really trying to elevate missional communities, saying if this is home, I love that you come here on Sunday morning, and we want to do Sunday morning so well, and we want to inspire you, and we want to give the diversity of the fivefold, but we cannot leave this place and say, there it is, I'm a disciple. Because that's like going to the pep rally, never going to the game and wondering why you keep losing. Our missional communities are the place where we actually build relationships that won't quit on one another. Relationships that will stay together and then allow this diversity of discipleship. So my question was, what are some of the ways that missional communities can actually help raise up discipleship that way? I believe that one of the greatest things you can bring to a missional community is actually something that you talked about today, and that is actually our weakness. And so what I mean by that is there's something in us that God has put in us. He's hardwired in us because we all have the Holy Spirit in us, right? Yeah. We have all of the fivefold in us, but there are areas of it that we don't see naturally because that's just not how we're made. And so we bring that weakness with us and submit it to the Holy Spirit and submit it to one another and say, I'm weak in this area. When we're listening for the Father, we're listening prophetically, I'm listening and allowing the Holy Spirit to be strong through my weakness. And I'm allowing the group and their, the diversity of gifts that are in the missional community to elevate the areas that, that are weak in me or the things that I don't see. But I also bring my strength, but I also have weaknesses. And so the weakness is what you bring to that, to allow the Holy Spirit to be the power that displays transformation in each other's lives. And so there's something that I may get because of how I'm made up or what I'm reading or what I'm experiencing that you may not. And so I bring that to the group to the missional community, excuse me, and you do the same. And so there is a mutual teaching through the Holy Spirit in each of us for all of us. And so discipleship, as we define it as growth and transformation, is taking place in that setting in ways that we really can't allow for on a Sunday morning. And so that's why, again, we need both. Yeah. And well, and I'll say this. I'm in your missional community. You, you, are. Are, you are the leader of the missional community I'm a part of, and I'm experiencing that. Uh, our family is experiencing discipleship through the diversity of voices in the long road of relationship together. So I've got just one last question for you. Um, for all of us, we're busy all the time, we as people. There are lots of things on our calendar. So I know when we're coming back in the fall, in August, we're really going to be hitting hard and helping people plug into missional community. As we get into these summer months, what would you say to anybody who would say, I'm hearing it, man, that's exciting, there's something inspiring, but I just don't feel like I have the bandwidth in my schedule. Is there any words of encouragement that you'd give to them? For sure. Um, it's a couple things. I think another question, not to just add another question to it, but another question we get a lot that's add tied to that question is six. in missional communities or small groups for that matter, what do you do with your kids, right? Like our missional community has a lot of kids yep. and we're incorporating them into some of the things that we're doing, but maybe not all of them are appropriate. Um, when it comes to missional community, we're, you could look at it like this, like, oh, we, we're, we're asking you as a pastoral staff and we're encouraging you and trying to inspire you to um, not only be here on Sundays because we believe it's valuable, but also show up to the time that you've designated to meet and be in, 
involved in each other's lives. You could look at it that way, like it's just adding more to your calendar, but this is the, the shift that I think we all need to make, and it's just like the gospel needs to permeate every area of our life. And guys, I'm sorry, or those that like to compartmentalize, I'm one of those. We like to have these little neat boxes that we put everything in. The gospel is supposed to permeate and affect and trickle down onto all of it. And so missional communities isn't just about, just like attending church doesn't make you the church, um, missional communities isn't just about the time that you meet. It's also about what you're doing with your life and how you're living your life. So the ask isn't to just add more things to your schedule. It's like, what does your schedule already look like? And how do you invite those that you're saying that you want to walk closely with into those things that you're already doing? That's really good. You got a kid in baseball. You're going to be sitting there watching sometimes some really laboriously long baseball (laughs) games. Invite somebody to come and sit with you in the bleachers as you're cheering on your kid and have some conversation because... I think one of the big misnomers about discipleship, we get it conflated with mentorship or a season time when you're walking with somebody. It is that, yes, but discipleship takes place in the small moments. Like even with your kids, you can talk in the car, you can talk at dinner, you can talk before you tuck them in at bedtime. You can create these different rhythms in your life and invite people into them and let them see how you live and, and what you're trying to do intentionally with your discipleship. And really it's just about having some intent Um, the intent being that we want to live transformed lives and you don't get transformation strictly from information. You have to actually activate it. Come on, man. That's refreshing, isn't it? Good. Do you receive your pastor of missional communities? Pastor Josh Balog. I'm going to ask with me because we never have an an opportunity where we do this, that we don't respond in blessing as he's been a blessing to us. I'm going to ask you to extend your hands toward him. And right now, let's just together, you, you lift your voice before the Lord. Father, we bless Pastor Josh. I thank you for the wisdom that he brings to the body. I thank you for his heart. Father, I thank you for the, the true substance that he walks in as a person. He really walks as a disciple who makes disciples. He's real. He's deep. He's true. He, he's, he's substantive in where he walks. And so I ask right now, Father, that you would give voice and strategy and direction. We as a, a church family agree that the treasure is in him. We want to receive it. We want to walk in it. And we ask, Father, that you would unlock it fully, that you'd bless him, that you bless his family, that you bless his finances, that everything they would touch, Father, that you would come around them. In Jesus' name. Amen. Can you join me in thanking the Lord for our brother Josh?